the freedom fighter. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is part 1. This will remain the land of the free only as long as it is the home of the brave. So wrote veteran news analyst Elmer Davis in his book called But We Were Born Free. And his convictions would certainly be echoed by the Apostle Paul. To Paul, his spiritual liberty in Christ was worth far more than popularity or even security. He was willing to fight for that liberty. Paul's first fight for Christian liberty was at the Jerusalem Council. His second was at a private meeting with Peter. Had Paul been willing to wage the spiritual warfare, the church in the first century might have become only a Jewish sect, preaching a mixture of law and grace. But because of Paul's courage, the gospel was kept free from legalism, and it was carried on to the Gentiles with great blessing. Before we look at the three acts in the first drama, the Council at Jerusalem, we must get acquainted with the participants. Paul, of course, we know as the great apostle to the Gentiles. And then Barnabas was one of Paul's closest friends. In fact, when Paul tried to get into the fellowship of the Jerusalem church, it was Barnabas who opened the way for him in Acts chapter 9. The name Barnabas means son of courage. And you will always find Barnabas encouraging somebody somewhere. When the gospel came to the Gentiles in Antioch, it was Barnabas who was sent to encourage them in their faith. So from the earliest days, Barnabas was associated with the Gentile believers. It was Barnabas who enlisted Paul to help minister at the church in Antioch. See Acts verse 11, or chapter 11. And the two of them worked together, not only in teaching, but also in helping the poor. Barnabas accompanied Paul on the first missionary trip and had seen God's blessing on the gospel that they preached. It was, it was also worth noting that it was Barnabas who encouraged young John Mark after he had dropped out of the ministry and he had incurred the actual displeasure of Paul in Acts chapter 13 through Acts 15. In later years, Paul was able to commend Mark and benefit actually from his friendship. Titus was a a Gentile believer who worked with Paul and apparently was one to Christ through the apostles' ministry, as we see in Acts, or not Acts, as we see in Titus chapter 1, verse 4. He was a product of the apostles' ministry among the Gentiles, and he was taken to the Jerusalem conference as Exhibit A from the Gentile churches. And then in later years, Titus assisted Paul by going to some of the most difficult churches to help them solve their problems. Three men were the, quote, pillars of the church in Jerusalem, Peter, John, and James, the brother of the Lord. And we must not be confused with the apostle James, who was killed by Herod. Peter, we know from his prominent part in the accounts in the Gospels, as well as in the first half of the book of Acts, 
It was to Peter that Jesus gave the keys so that it was he who was involved in opening the door of faith to the Jews, to the Samaritans also, and to the Gentiles. John, we also know from the gospel records as one of Christ's inner three apostles, or you might say in Christ's inner circle, associated with Peter in the ministry of the word. See Acts chapter 3. It's James who perhaps needs more introduction. The gospel record indicates that Mary and Joseph had children and James was among them. But, you know, of course, Jesus was born by the power of the Spirit and not through natural generation. Our Lord's brothers and sisters did not believe in him during his early ministry. See John 7. Yet we find his brethren associated with the believers in the early church. Paul informed us that the risen Christ appeared to James, and this was the turning point in his life. James was the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. See Acts chapter 15 and also chapter 21. He was also the writer of the epistle of James. And that letter, plus Acts 21 verse 18, would suggest that he was very Jewish in his thinking along with these, uh, with these men and the apostles and the elders were a group of false brethren. Let me say that again. Along with these men that I just brought up and spoke about, the apostles and elders, as it says in Acts chapter 15, verses 4 and verse 6, were a group of false brethren who infiltrated the meetings and tried to rob the believers of their liberty in Christ. See Galatians chapter 2. Undoubtedly, these were some of the Judaizers who had followed Paul in church after church and had tried to capture his converts. The fact that Paul called them false brethren indicates that they were not true Christians, but were only masquerading as such so they could capture the conference for themselves. So this then is the cast of characters. Acts 15 should should be read along with Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 to get the actual full story of the event. And then in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, Paul and Barnabas had returned to Antioch from their first missionary journey. They were excited about the way that God had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. But the Jewish legalists in Jerusalem were upset with their report. So they came to Antioch and taught that a gentle, uh, excuse me, that a Gentile had to become a Jew before he could become a Christian. Circumcision, which they demanded of the Gentiles, was an important Jewish rite handed down from the days of Abraham. Submitting to circumcision meant accepting and obeying the whole Jewish law. Actually, the Jewish people had forgotten the inner spiritual meaning of the rite. Just as some churches today have lost the spiritual meaning of baptism and have turned it into uh, an eternal, excuse me, an external ritual, 
the true Christian has experienced an inner circumcision of the heart and does not need to submit to any physical operation. See Philippians chapter 3. Now when Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas confronted these men with the truth, with the truth of the gospel, the result was a very heated argument. See Acts chapter 15. It was decided that the best place to settle the question was before the church leaders in Jerusalem. And we should not think that this Jerusalem conference was a representative meeting for all the churches such as a denominational conference, because it was not. Paul, Barnabas, Titus, and certain other men from Antioch represented the Gentile Christians who had been saved totally apart from Jewish law. But there were no representatives from the churches Paul had established in Gentile territory. When the deputation arrived in Jerusalem, they met privately with the church leaders. Paul did not go to the to uh, did not go to Jerusalem because the church sent him. He went up by revelation. That is, he went up because the Lord sent him. Compare Galatians chapter two verse one with chapter one verse twelve. And the Lord gave him the wisdom to meet with the leaders first, so that they would be able to present a united front at the public meetings. Lest by any means, the Bible says in Galatians 2.2, I should run or had run in vain. Does not mean that Paul was unsure either of his message or of his ministry. His conduct on the way to the conference indicates that he had no doubts at all. That he was concerned about the future of the gospel among the Gentiles because this was his specific ministry from Christ. If the pillars uh, sided with the Judaizers or tried to compromise, then Paul's ministry would be in jeopardy. He wanted to get their approval before he faced the whole assembly. Otherwise, a three-way division could result. The result of this private consultation was the apostles and elders approved Paul's gospel. They added nothing to it, and thereby they declared the Judaizers to be wrong. And note this, uh, this private meeting was only the beginning. In, in Acts chapter 2, verses 3 and 5, the historical account of the Council of Jerusalem is recorded by Luke in Acts 15. Several witnesses presented the case for the gospel of the grace of God, beginning with Peter, and that was in Acts chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. It was, it was he, it was Peter, who had been chosen by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles originally. And he reminded the assembly that God gave the Holy Spirit to the believing Gentiles just as he did to the Jews, so that there was no difference. This had been a difficult lesson for the early Christians to learn because for centuries they had uh, been, there had been a difference between Jews and Gentiles for centuries. 
so it was difficult. In his death on the cross, Jesus had broken down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles, so that in Christ there are no racial differences. In his speech to the conference, Peter made it clear that there is but one way of salvation, and that was faith in Jesus Christ. That is faith in Jesus Christ. Then Paul and Barnabas told the assembly what God had done among the Gentiles in Acts chapter 15. And what a missionary report that that was. It was, it was a perfect missionary report. It must have been. The false brethren who were there must have debated with Paul and Barnabas, but the two soldiers of the cross would not yield. Paul wanted the truth of the gospel. He wanted the truth of the gospel to continue among the Gentiles. But it seems that Titus became a test case at this point. He was a Gentile Christian who had never submitted to circumcision, yet it was clear to all that he was genuinely saved. Now, if the Judaizers were right, ex where, where it says, except it, where it says in the Bible in Acts 15, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved, then Titus himself was not a saved man. But he was a saved man and gave evidence of having the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Judaizers were wrong. And at this point, it might be helpful if we considered another associate of Paul's, and that is Timothy. As we see in Acts 16, that was Paul, was Paul be, being inconsistent by refusing to circumcise Titus, yet agreeing to circumcise Timothy? No is the answer, because, the different, because two different issues were involved. In the case of Timothy, Paul was not submitting to Jewish law in order to win him to Christ. Timothy was part Jew, part Gentile, and his, his lack of circumcision would have hindered his ministry among the people of Israel. And Titus was a full Gentile, and for him to have submitted would have indicated that he was missing something in his Christian experience. To have circumcised Titus would have been cowardice, and it would have been compromise. Not to have circumcised Timothy would have been to create unnecessary problems in Paul's ministry. James, the leader of the church, gave the summation of the arguments and the conclusion of the matter in Acts chapter 15. As Jewish as he was, he made it clear that a Gentile does not have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. God's program for this today is to take out of the Gentiles a people for his name. Jews and Gentiles are saved the same way. They're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. James then asked that the assembly counsel the Gentiles to do nothing that would offend unbelieving Jews, lest they hinder them from being saved. Paul won the battle. His view prevailed in the private meeting when the leaders approved his gospel and in the public meeting as well when the group agreed with Paul and opposed the Judaizers. 
Echoes of the Jerusalem Conference are heard repeatedly in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul mentioned the yoke of bondage, reminding us of Peter's similar warning. And then the themes of liberty and bondage are repeated often in Galatians, as is the idea of circumcision. Now, centuries later, today's Christians need to appreciate fresh and courageous, the fresh and courageous stand that Paul and his associates took for the liberty of the gospel. We need to appreciate that. Paul's concern was the truth of the gospel, Galatians 2, not the peace of the church. The wisdom that God sends from above is first pure, then peaceable, James 3, verse 17. Peace at any price was not Paul's philosophy of ministry, nor should it be ours. Ever since Paul's time, the enemies of grace have been trying to add something to the simple gospel of the grace of God. They tell us that a man is saved by faith in Christ plus something. Plus what? Plus good works. Plus the Ten Commandments. Plus baptism. Plus church membership. Maybe plus religious ritual. And Paul made it clear that these teachers are wrong. In fact, Paul pronounced a curse on any person, man or angel, who preaches any other gospel than the gospel of the grace of God centered in Jesus Christ. You can see Galatians chapter 1 and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for a definition of the gospel. Let me give you the scriptures exactly. Galatians 1 verse 6 through 9. And then see 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 1, or not chapter, verse 1 through verse 7. It's a serious thing to tamper with the gospel. And we see that in Acts chapter 3. In chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, the Judaizers had hoped to get the leaders of the Jerusalem church to disagree with Paul. By contrast, Paul made it clear that he himself was not impressed either by the persons or the positions of the church leaders. He respected them, of course. Otherwise, he would not have consulted with them privately. But he did not fear them or seek to buy their influence. All he wanted them to do was recognize the grace of God at work in his life and his ministry. And this they did. Not only did the assembly approve Paul's gospel and oppose Paul's enemies, but they encouraged Paul's ministry and they recognized publicly that God had committed the Gentile aspect of his work into Paul's hands. They could add nothing to Paul's message or to his ministry and they dared not take anything away from it. There was agreement and there was unity. One gospel would be preached to Jews and to Gentiles. However, the leaders recognized that God had assigned different areas of ministry to different men. Apart from his visit to the household of Cornelius in Acts 10 and to the Samaritans in Acts 8, Peter had centered his ministry primarily among the Jews. 
Paul had been called as God's special ambassador to the Gentiles. So it was agreed that each man would minister in the sphere assigned to him by God. The gospel of the circumcision and the gospel of the uncircumcision are not two different messages. It had already been agreed that there was only one gospel. So then we have here two different spheres of ministry, one to the Jews and other to the Gentiles. Peter and Paul would both preach the same gospel, and the same Lord would be at work in and through them, but they would minister to different peoples. This does not mean that Paul would never seek to win the Jews. To the contrary, actually, he had a great burden on his heart for his people. In fact, when Paul came to a city, he would first go to the Jewish synagogue, if there was one there, and he would start his work among his own people. Nor was Peter excluded from ministering to the Gentiles, but each man would concentrate his work in his own sphere assigned to him by the Holy Spirit. James, Peter, and John would go to the Jews. Paul would go to the Gentiles. The Jerusalem conference began with a great possibility for division and dissension, yet it ended up with cooperation and agreement. As we see in Psalms 133 verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Possibly we need to practice some of this same cooperation today. We need to recognize the fact that God calls people to different ministries in different places, yet we all preach the same gospel and are seeking to work together to build his church. Among those who know and love Christ, there can be no such thing as competition. Peter was a great man and perhaps the leading apostle, yet he gladly yielded to Paul, a newcomer, and permitted him to carry on his ministry as the Lord led him to. But previously, Paul explained his independence from the apostles. But now in Galatians chapter 2, he points out his interdependence with the apostles. He was free, and yet he was willing, willingly in fellowship with them in ministry of the gospel. Now from the theological and, and to the practical, certainly these things go together. Correct doctrine is never a substitute for Christian duty. Too often our church meetings discuss problems, but they fail to result in practical help for the needy world that is before us. Paul had always been interested in helping the poor, so he was glad to follow the leader's suggestion. Even though the conference ended with Paul and the leaders in agreement, it did not permanently solve the problem. The Judaizers did not give up, but persisted in interfering with Paul's work and invading the church he founded. Paul carried the good news of the council's decision to the churches in Antioch, in Syria, in Cilicia, and in other areas where he administered. 
But the Judaizers followed at his heels like yelping dogs. Starting at Antioch, where they even swayed Peter to their cause. See Galatians chapter 2 verse 11. There is little question that the Judaizers went to the churches of Galatia to sow their seeds of discord. And for this reason, Paul had to write the letter that we're now studying right now. It may have been written from Antioch shortly after the Council of Jerusalem through some scholars, though some date it later and have Paul writing from either Ephesus or Corinth. So these historical details are important, but they're not vital to an understanding of the letter itself. So as I close, this is probably Paul's earliest letter, and in it we find every major doctrine that Paul believed, preached, and wrote about in his subsequent ministry. The curtain falls on this drama, but it will go up to to reveal another. Once again, God's freedom fighter, Paul, will have to defend the truth of the gospel. This time it will be before Peter. Amen. I will continue this message in part two of the Freedom Fighter as soon as possible.